Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Lord, I'm very conscious that above us, in a sense, in these balloons are many names and situations that in our hearts we bring before you, O God. Many very real needs, longings for spiritual change, for a breaking down and opening up. And we do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our great high priest. And even already, although the bits of paper and the balloons are contained within this building, even already the cries of our hearts are being heard in the throne room of heaven. We do thank you for this place. We love the place, O God, wherein thine honor dwells. Uh, We know that you're everywhere, Lord, but we thank you that you have enabled not just us, but people throughout our world to gather, some in massive and beautiful cathedrals, others in basically wee shacks and huts. But nonetheless, there are places where your people can gather and fellowship and worship. We thank you for this building. Lord, I certainly, and many of us who have been here perhaps a wee while now, are thankful for the gifts of your people over the years that allowed us, enabled us to make this building into somewhere which can serve our community. We do pray for next week for the calf fair. Lord, we ask that that intangible sense of the tangible presence of God, if that makes sense, will be noticed and people will be aware of it as they come through the doors. And look at the beautiful things. We recognize that all these creative gifts, whether people consciously recognize it or not, all these creative gifts, all these beautiful things speak of you, our creator. Every good and perfect gift comes from heaven above. And for the talents and the skills of those who have produced such things, we give you thanks. And we ask that in fellowship and in conversation and in friendship, the aroma of Jesus Christ will be known here. And so we pray, O Holy Spirit, now. And we thank you for that promise, Lord Jesus, that you would go to the Father and ask the Father, and he would send the Holy Spirit. Next Sunday we'll be celebrating Pentecost. So we do pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts and minds opened not only to hear your word, but as we come to take the bread and wine of communion, to feed by faith on the living God. Lord Jesus Christ, hear us as we pray. Amen. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we're picking up just these odd Sundays when I'm here. picking up. And just very briefly this morning, we're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2 it is, and we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 17. The book of Revelation chapter 2, and reading from verse 12 to verse 17. And this is the vision given to John on the Lord's day in the island of Patmos by the exalted Christ, the one who holds 
the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, as he says in the beginning of chapter 2, the picture of Jesus Christ, King and Head of his church, the Lord of the church. These are the words of Jesus Christ, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again, the, the God who is the beginning and the end of all things, who holds the whole scroll later on in the book of Revelation, the whole scroll of human history, the history of his church and the history of his people, the one who is the resurrection and the life. And now to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. And may God bless to us this reading from his own holy word, and to his name indeed be the praise and the glory. We do ask God to come and to speak to us into our hearts through all that we do together, through our singing, through our praying, through our sharing in the bread and wine of communion, through the hearing of God's word. And so we're going to sum that up in a prayer as we sing together our next time. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while I wait on thee. Hush my heart to listen in expectancy 608 and if we're able invite you to stand to sing it was my dad who used to say that ministers were the strongest union out ministers of the church i hasten to say were the strongest union out now if you think that he was a man of a generation of people now who are in their 90s in our church so there's not many of you um, and, and lived through, you know, very traumatic times with trade union power in our country. He played football with Mick McGahey. Do you remember him? Well, you won't know who he is, well. But uh, Mick McGahey, he used to say in the 1970s, remember the power cuts that he wished he'd given Mick McGahey a bit more of a boot when he used to tackle him on the ash pit over in the halfway in Canberra Slang. Well, for him to say that ministers were stronger than the National Union of Miners, as they were in those days, on anything else, well, it says a lot about what he thought about ministers, including probably his own son. But yes, ministers do tend to kind of clamp. So you find things like the General Assembly, or you could find someone in the, like me at the moment who's going around visiting ministers, not just for a coffee and a blather, but actually a proper consultation, that, that, that ministers actually would tend to clam up or, or gather together. It is true often, unfortunately. Um, there is a conference, you know, I go to at Creef um, in, in January often of ministers, and I have to say, sometimes when you're sitting at the table, maybe at the meal afterwards or during the event, and, and something is mentioned of what's happening in your church, well, of course, if you listen to every minister, who said that their church is bursting at the seams, that everything's doing well, that the Sunday school is growing, that the liberal... Well, you'd think, my goodness, Scotland was caught up in the midst of a revival. <laughs> of course, we know that's not the case. 
And Jesus here is brutally honest about the state of the church. The whole church, the whole of these letters, although they are covering churches gathered in Turkey as we now know it, they open up. Indeed, that's why in the introduction to the letter we're looking at this morning, he describes himself, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He, he speaks into situations with that sharp sword, the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is sharper than the surgeon's knife, and cuts in and opens up and divides. Here is Jesus, who in one sense is being brutally frank about the state of affairs as he speaks his pointed and direct word. There's no point, in a sense, minister or members, in trying to do a quick one before Jesus, who, who tried to confuse him or overwhelm him by our propaganda. He sees into the heart of individuals, but also into the heart of his people, and knows the real story, not only about what's going on within the church, but also in the setting in which the church is placed. And this week at our General Assembly, in various ways and at various times, the speakers who presented their reports and those who got up to speak, and I'm afraid to say your minister was one of the ones that was up quite a few times speaking. Well, other folk just sit there and look at each other, so I thought, might as well say something. After all, I'm there, so, you know. Um, but nonetheless, as we thought of the state of affairs of the church and the challenges and opportunities which the church is facing, we often did so in the light of the very real challenges we face within a society. A society is increasingly secular. A society where opportunities often to publicly testify to Jesus Christ is met with at best cold indifference and at worst outright opposition. A society where the church often, the Christian community of the church, is so divided and separate from what's going on in the Verticum as the real world that actually we end up just talking to ourselves because we have little relevance or impact. I thank God that's not the case here. I thank God that's not the case here. Unfortunately, sadly, that is the case of many churches, of many traditions, of many denominations within our country today. And we do, one of the conveners of the committee says, oh, Bruce just says it as it is. You can take that any way you like. <laughs> but um, he's the one that did come up to me at the end and say, we're still friends, aren't we? <laughs> and if, Dave, if I hadn't been sitting talking to David Miller, who's such a gracious man, I might have said, no, we're not. But... <laughs> But I thought I'd better not say that in front of David, who's such a faithful soul. So I said, of course we are, you know. But, but sometimes we're bad at not being honest about the realities. Jesus is. But it's done with a purpose. It's not spoken to hurt and to damage and destroy. It's spoken so that something might be done about it. The whole tenor of this letter, indeed all the letters, is, uh, well, apart from the letter to the church of Smyrna, who are the, ones, the only ones that aren't criticized for anything, but the rest of the churches, it's done so that there might be an awakening, there might be a challenging. Jesus says that. Repent therefore, verse 60. 
Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. Whoever's ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And how, as we enter into this season of ascension and Pentecost, we need to pray, I'm sure we have, that God by His Spirit would not only speak into individual lives or individual situations, but that in our nation and within the life of the church corporate, we would hear the voice of the living God speak forth, thus says the Lord. Jesus here speaks into a situation. We've heard places described in many ways, haven't we? I remember many, well, a good few years ago when Gregor had his 21st birthday and he had it, well, it was after his birthday or it was before his, it was after, it was before his birthday. It was April. It was a silly time to have a barbecue. I can't remember if it was before or after. Anyway, it was in April anyway. And, and folk were coming out to the house, to the manse, and some of his friends, and I went to pick some of them up from the station. And of course, well, Gregor's not here this morning, so I can say this. He, isn't, he actually isn't the one, Carl's the one that talks. He takes after his mum. Uh, <laughs> Gregor takes after me and is very quiet. <laughs> now, you don't think that's the case. You ask my wife and she'll tell you, actually, I am. I actually am, but that's another story for a psychologist to get their hands on to. Uh, but he never says very much. So I pick up these folk from, from the train station, from Paisley. No, from, was it Paisley? Greenock? Greenock. Well, mind you, I suppose. Anybody live in Greenock from Greenock here? <laughs> well, well, I suppose you live in Greenock anywhere. Isn't it quite nice, really, I suppose. But, uh, uh, I said that once about Clyde Bank. John Fulton was brought up there. So, <laughs> so anyway, they came up the road and they said, oh, this is Uddingston. I thought, well, I'll just say that in the train, you know, station that. And said, oh, oh, now we know, now we know why Gregor's always going on about it. And what a lovely place it is and everything else. And he says, well, he never says that to us. But they obviously had heard from Gregor what a nice place Huddingston is. Well, it is, isn't it? And how we have to thank God that we live in such a nice place. There's a lot of other less nice places round about. But I don't think any of us, whatever our community is, would like to describe, we have it described as a place where Satan has his throne. Exactly, Elizabeth. Quite harsh, isn't it? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And that certainly is a very damning indictment of this town of Pergamum. It actually, in, in, if Ephesus was the great merchant capital of the Asia Minor province of the Roman Empire. Smyrna, is the, is the modern-day Izmir, was a place, a relatively small community, a close-knit community, where there was a mercantile class who had done very well, many of whom were Jewish, and had done very well for themselves, and looked down their noses at these Christians who were breaking ranks in so many different ways, and therefore the small Christian community that was very noticeable and, and, and very open to challenge and to persecution, and indeed, as we are told, and that led to their poverty, so the church in Pergamon was in a place where there was great learning, many public libraries. Somebody once described that if Ephesus was New York, Pergamon was Washington with the great museums. I've always wanted to visit Washington. Any chance I've gone in your plane later on in the summer when you go back to America um, and, and visit the great centers of learning that there are, the great museums that they are, the great places of culture that they are in Washington, D.C. Well, in some ways, Pergamon was like that. It was also a center of pagan worship, of Roman god worship. Indeed, one of the Roman gods, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce what the Greek is, because you know I can hardly speak the king's English, let alone anything else. But nonetheless, one of the names of the Roman gods, where there was a temple in Pergamon, was called Savior. 
And indeed, many people look to the Roman Empire to be its savior. Many people look to Caesar to be their savior. So, Pergamon was a center of the Caesar cult, which was really just beginning to take off in the Roman Empire and become a very dominant force in the second century. The worship of Caesar as God. Caesar is Lord. And so, people looked to earthly powers onto the spiritual powers behind the earthly presence to be their Savior. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principality and powers of this present age. How often we're referring back to verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to Asia Minor, to that reality that behind this outward show of learning and of worship and of order and of purpose, there were dark spiritual forces contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, that's why Jesus describes it as where Satan has his throne. We need to be aware of that. It's not the case that we live in a society where, and sometimes we've heard ministers, I have to say, say this, we live in a society where the good folks that are walking about outside, are, it's lovely we can look out, oh, at least I can look out, you can just look at me, I can look out, uh, and, and see our community. We have to be clear. And I'm not saying we go about and point at Ebden and say, you're a child of Satan. I'm not suggesting that. But we have to be clear that there are two kingdoms. And I'm not talking about the reign of her Britannic majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. There is either the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or there are principalities and powers that are under the rule and direction and reign of Satan. There is either God's kingdom or the worldly kingdom the powers, the philosophies, the attitudes of this present age, that behind them, if they do not acknowledge God as God, behind them, there is the power of Satan. Some of you may have been listening to the radio this morning and to a service to mark the 75th anniversary of D.D. What interested me was that in in both the evening of D.D., our own king, King George VI, the Queen's father, and President Roosevelt in the United States went on the radio to announce what had happened. But both of them, both of them, called upon people to pray to Almighty God. They quoted part of President Roosevelt's prayer. Now, I don't think President Roosevelt was actually a dynamic Christian, but at least amongst the rulers, there was that recognition of our need to look to Almighty God. I wonder how many of those who are standing for office as prime minister in our country and a leader of a particular party, or indeed any party, would now publicly call our nation to prayer. And not to prayer to some vague deity of your own imagination, but to Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. Well, they certainly wouldn't have done that in Pergamon. And therefore, it was a place where evil powers, and Satan himself had his throne. And yet, look what Jesus says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Tradition has that Antipas was a bishop of Pergamon, a leader of the church in Pergamon, and he was actually taken to the public square and publicly burnt to death in front of the town and the populace, because he would not say that Caesar was Lord, but that Jesus Christ was Lord. And that was seen as a sign of being treasonous, as a sign of being a rebel, a sign worthy of death. 
and my friends down through the ages, and we've made reference to this even just the last time we looked at the church in Smyrna, and as a church here for many years, including in my predecessor's time, we have always had a concern for the suffering church. And for those who in various ways have refused to bow the knee and say, yes, this power or this principality or this authority is God. That's not to say we don't respect the powers and authorities and we don't respect our government. I'm not saying that. But does God, as Lord, as the boss, is the one who has ultimate authority over who I am and my decisions and my life and my living and countless millions of believers over these last 2,000 years? have refused to renounce their faith, even when friends, family, and others are publicly persecuted for that faith. And as a church, I know we do have a heart for that situation. They were firm in the faith. They stood on the one who is the rock of ages. Psalmist says that he will put our feet upon a rock and give us a youth song in our hearts to sing. Actually, it's God. Notice what the psalmist says. He will put our feet upon a rock, and He will give us a youth song of praise to sing. You see, my friends, it's all of God. He's the only one who has the power. He's shown that power by bringing Jesus up from the grave and now bringing Him into glory. He alone has the power to make that radical change within the human heart where we no longer sing the song of sin. And the the song of sin isn't explicitly or necessarily about really bad things, but even I can spell sin. How do we spell it? S-I-N. And the song of sin is, I, I'm the king of the castle, and you're all dirty, we rascals. That probably is not, just about Karen's not here. She'll probably ban me for singing something that's not politically correct nowadays. But that's what sin ultimately is. It's not even doing bad things. It's saying, I'm in charge. I'm like God the Tower of Babel. We will make a name for ourselves and build ourselves up so we might reach the heavens. And God says, yeah, you think so? And pull the rug from under their feet. That's what sin ultimately is. I am in charge. But God, by His grace, as we come to Him in repentance, repent therefore, Jesus says, we'll put our feet upon a rock, the rock of ages the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the great I am, and puts a you song, a song of worship, a song of praise, a song of faith in our God. And my friends, that's the only way that people would face and be able to deal. Well, let's be honest, none of us want to be toasted for lunch, literally. Humanly speaking, we would do everything to avoid being put into an awkward position, certainly to be put into the public square and burnt to death. When God, by His Spirit, seals our hearts again in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the Spirit of God stamping His seal of ownership into our very souls and beings. When God does that, we might stutter, we might squirm, we might feel embarrassed, we might be awkward, we might think, oh dear, but we cannot renounce the one who alone is Lord and God, Jesus Christ. We're firm in the faith. And we're faithful in persecution. My faithful witness. Remember what Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. The word witness is actually a very legal and sovereign 
idea behind it. Later on, Paul talked about being ambassadors for Christ. It's all interconnected. It means that we're sent by, with a royal command and with a royal commission. In one sense, you know, the, the church in Smyrna, we, I know your afflictions, your poverty. People look down on these Christians, oh, poor souls, look what they're doing, about a bunch of idiots, you know, the rest of it. But really, they were in the king's service. They had a king's commission. They were witnesses to the most amazing things that had happened. They were witnesses not only to what God had done in their life, but to the revelation of God into our world in Jesus Christ. That is a high and holy calling. Tomorrow morning, when you're in your office or in the school or whatever else, and things are going on, and perhaps you do feel a wee bit awkward because you're never the only one. Well, actually, you're probably not the only one. There are probably a lot of decent folk, let's, let's be honest, probably often in these situations, there actually are decent folk who are too frightened to speak. And sometimes it takes a Christian, doesn't it, Karen, just to speak up and to say, no, I don't think that's right, or I think we should do this. And then you'll get somebody else saying, well, actually, I agree with you. But they're too frightened. We, it's easy to say, I know I'm sitting in here, this church building, but we shouldn't be frightened. He who's in you by the Spirit of God is greater than he is in the world. The same Spirit that brought Jesus Christ from the dead is the Spirit that inhabits every heart and mind of every believer. We're in a royal commission. We've got a great command. We've got a merciful commander-in-chief who is Lord and who loves us. And in our weakness, His grace and strength is made perfect. And we, therefore, can be faithful in persecutions. Thank God we don't live in such a plight. But take the example of our brothers and sisters and let that encourage us in the very mundane challenges we face, but nonetheless very real challenges we face. Take heart tomorrow morning when you're in school or when you're in the office or when you talk to your family and they think, oh, here goes Grant again, you know. What you're saying and what you're bearing witness to is the very words and the person of the one who has eternal life in his hands. What greater privilege and responsibility to bear witness to him. But lastly, as time's moving on, just as well, but yet he's not starting to half twelve. Um, as time moves on, look what he says to them. He warns them, he warns them. And he speaks about Balak and about Nicolaitans. And, and basically what he's saying, he's using an example from Israel's history, Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immoralities. Talking about an incident that happened when Israel was in the wilderness wandering about those years before they entered into the promised land. He speaks too about the Nicolaitans. I made a reference to them. These Nicolaitans keep appearing. And as I said to you a couple of weeks, or whenever it was the last time I was here, um, the Nicolaitans, they're not very sure what they were. Some people actually, I found out, actually, did a bit more research. I asked Robert Wainwright last week. I thought, well, ask Robert. Oh, I thought, go, Robert knows. Robert will know. So I asked him, and he was very helpful. And he said, well, some people think that it's actually, there's a man called Nicholas who's appointed to be one of the deacons in the church along with Stephen, way back in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 6, I think it is. You can look that up when you get home. And some people think this was Nicholas, Nicolaitans. And, and, and they think, it's all theory, they think that actually this guy, Nicholas, what he thought was, was actually in many ways very commendable. How do we bridge the gap? Does it sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> How do we bridge the gap between a Christian worldview and the secular and, and pagan, and well, maybe not secular really to say, but the pagan alternative spirituality of the Roman Empire? How do we bridge the gap? A very good question. 
And so he began to consider it. And like a lot of good ideas, and that's true, a lot of good ideas, they start off good, but then over time, you know, as I said, right way back when we looked at the Ephesians, the tendency is to go this way or that way, to be pulled one way or the other, tossed about by every wind and wave, again, what Paul says to the Ephesians. And that what started off perhaps as a genuine effort to engage with a pagan worldview in a way which was meaningful in order that there could be some connection what started off as that became, at least by some, by the Nicolaitans, as hijacked. They probably took the poor man's name to give them some degree of credibility and a kind of authority. Well, we are, you know, we are part of, we are part of the church as well, you know. And actually, became an embracing of worldviews, an accommodating of things which they shouldn't be accommodating, either theologically, doctrinally, or morally, as it says it is here. And eventually, it led to Gnosticism, which was the great heresy of the second century, which basically said, what you do in the body doesn't really matter. Jesus, Jesus was very special, and probably a man sort of souped up with the Spirit in some kind of way, and, and, and it's all about finding your inner self, discovering the God that's within. Does that sound familiar, those of you in modern philosophy? Find and spirituality, finding the God that's within you expressing that, going on a journey, you know, and it all sounds so right and so nice, and, but it's the broad road that leads to destruction. Not follow the one who's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. But it started off there. And you don't need me to tell you or to overly elaborate on the fact that that is the reality of the church in many places today. Just the week before, I was down at Oxford, and I'm not giving details of how the Lord has directed me in my sabbatical, but just a wee illustration. The week before, we've been given parables to speak about, and the week before, the fortnight before, there was a parable. I was given the parable of the vineyard in Matthew's gospel. One of the, the ladies who came to speak was given the parable of the foolish virgins, you know, not having their lamps ready for the bridegroom coming, all about, in a sense, waiting for the return of Jesus and the coming of Jesus. The person who got up and spoke, they spent 12 minutes, we're giving, I was really keen, I was, you should have been there, 12 minutes, that's, that's me just warming up, really, you know, but uh, 12 minutes, she spent 12 minutes, you know, she was talking about global warming. Now, I'm actually encouraged, most of you are thinking, well, how did you get that? So, praise God, you know, you know. she went away off into the sunset and the environment, very real wishes, very real wishes. Not sure the parable of the foolish virgins, Graham, really is a good basis for having a concern, is it? But you see what I mean? Just. And here, dear, notice where you end up. Jesus says, be careful. Be alert. Within the church. Within the church. Because if you're not, then I'm coming. And there's going to be a battle. And my friends, I think as a church of Jesus Christ, we are entering into a phase already. You perhaps heard last week at the general, or the week before at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, Scripture Union was named and shamed as a homophobic institution. Why? Simply because they clarified that they asked those who are working for them, who, who, who bear their name and who serve that organization as a worker or as an associate worker, uphold Christian standards in their living, in their lifestyle. That means that they're not, you know, the book is every other day of the week. That means they're not shacked up with man, woman, or beast. That means that they're not out every night getting stoned. You know what I mean? 
Christian standards and lifestyle. Didn't mention one particular issue, but it was looked on by some within the Church of Scotland who are using it for their own evil intents, synagogue of Satan, and publicly named and shamed to cause trouble. Jesus says, I'm warning you. You get that sorted out, or there'll be trouble. And he used to say, just wait till your dad comes home. Don't think I ever work in our house, anyway. <laughs> or just wait till Jesus comes. But look what he says as we close. To the one who is victorious, that is, the one who listens and lets God's word take root in their life and bears the fruit that is meant to bear fruit. The one who listens, I will give some of the hidden manna, the bread. That's bread of heaven. I will give that person a white stone with a you name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We'll have our names in the Lamb's book of life. Right at the very end of the book of Revelation, the book is opened up, the scroll is opened up with the lists of God's people. Used to be at communion many years ago, used to have maybe the white card, some of you, yes, and you had to have that card, and if you didn't have that white card, you had to go and sit upstairs. That doesn't mean these three folk are departed from fellowship, I hasten to add, but in the old days it was. Before that, you used to get a communion token, and the point was, the original point was that the elder would go around the districts of the area, because in those days they were obviously far-flung in rural areas, and would test the people of God so that they would have some understanding of the faith before they came to take, you know, and they were given that token as a sign that they were fit to take communion. Times have moved on, but nonetheless, as we come to take the bread and wine of communion, we do have to examine ourselves. Paul tells us to do that. Are our names written in the Lamb's book of life? Have we, say, have we repented and said, Jesus, you're the boss. You're the great I am, no me. Are we asking Jesus to help us with some of the very easy ways in which we're all enticed into sin? and lured into saying things or doing things or not saying things and not doing things that we know we should. How subtle is the ploys of the evil one. Peers as an angel of light, although he's a prince of darkness. We don't need a white car to get into take communion. Thank God, I think that's well done away with. But we do need to know that Jesus knows you. So let's come and share in the bread and wine of communion. Let's sing together as we do. So number five, number five, Janice is going to lead us, I presume in the piano for this one. Yes, it's more a piano one. Above the voices of the world around me, my hopes and dreams, my cares and loves and fears, the long-awaited call of Christ has found me, the voice of Jesus echoes in my ears. And let's sing this as a response as we offer ourselves to God in worship, as we bring our offerings and as we gather around this table. Lord, forgive us for not always remembering that heavenly perspective, especially when we gather to share in communion. to that big picture of who you are and to that big picture of your church, the church, Lord Jesus, that you loved and gave yourself for. And we ask that 
as we prayed at the beginning, that the aroma of Jesus Christ would be known in this building. So we pray that as we leave this place and go on with our lives and in the various circumstances that we inhabit, the very grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would indeed be our portion, our testimony, our witness, our experience, our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.